Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This day, June 19, our panellists will give you the lowdown on Facebook's venture into cryptocurrency. We'll look at what's happening in Hong Kong, 2 million people on the streets. And we'll also dive into the murky world of regulatory dark matter. As always, we close with our books and culture segment. Today, we look at a classic work of science fiction, a fascinating podcast on Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel Prize winning economist, a new documentary about the poverty industry, and then, importantly, we'll discuss the deeper meaning of Keanu Reeves as John Wick. But first of all, it's time to introduce the panel, 50% of which today comes on loan from RMIT University. <laughs> I speak firstly of my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. And also Professor Sinclair Davidson. Thank you, Scott. Great to have you back, Sink. And rounding out the panel is a resident economist uh, and research fellow, Kurt Wallace. Thanks, Scott. Great to have you back too, mate. Uh, don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. Very importantly, you need to be a subscriber to this podcast because we have a very special episode that will be released this coming Friday. This coming Friday, the um, episode that we did with Peter Ridd, a um, really fascinating, I thought, interesting interview um, with Peter about both his experiences and what those experiences have meant for the university sector and intellectual freedom in general. Absolutely. Uh, that uh, It takes three people to interview someone as, <laughs> as smart as Peter Ridd. It was you, me, and uh, and Gideon Rosner. And so, yes, we did. Uh, you did a great job, Chris, I think, of teasing out uh, free speech university issues, we talked about science and of course we talked about the uh, memorable court case uh, that Peter's been involved in. Many, many listeners will be interested in that so subscribe and that will pop up early Friday morning. Now, let's go to Hong Kong. Yeah, so of course in Hong Kong, as all know, if you've been watching any media over the last fortnight, the two million um, people in Hong Kong have been marching in protest against a extradition bill, which would allow the um, uh, the Hong Kong government to extradite people to um, either China or Taiwan. The bill itself is called the Future, sorry, Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Legislation. The idea is that it would allow for case-by-case transfers of fugitives um, by the Hong Kong chief executives to any jurisdiction with which this the city, so Hong Kong, lacks a formal extradition treaty. Of course, people in Hong Kong have been very deeply concerned that this will allow um, uh, for the extradition of Hong Kong residents and um, people in Hong Kong to China, where the legal system is a complete disaster. The two million people on the streets um, ultimately resulted in the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, susp- both suspending the bill and offering this apology. I offer my most sincere apology to the people of Hong Kong. I've still got much to learn and do better in balancing diverse interests, in listening more to all walks of life, and in taking our society forward. So is the rule of law one of these diverse interests that need to be balanced? <laughs> um, why don't we start with you, Kurt? What, what's your takeaway of, the, um, uh, of this Hong Kong, um, this huge kerfuffle in Hong Kong? Well, I think it shows there's a huge tension uh, going on in, in China and, and Hong Kong where citizens are obviously fearful of uh, the Chinese legal system, don't want to be extradited and exposed to that. And I think it um, sort of shows the, the tension in Hong Kong with uh, you know the Chinese government influence and um, you know, the, the liberal values of, of Hong Kong citizens. So It was a genuinely extraordinary thing to see because we've sort of, since about 2014 when the last big protests were, we've sort of written the future of liberal Hong Kong off and um, uh, we can still all visit it and, it and it's and it's perfectly safe and it still has a common law system but we don't normally think of um, the future of Hong Kong as still that British common law um, uh, free country that it could that it has been so powerfully but this shows you that there's there's general there's still power in liberal Hong Kong belief and philosophy isn't there sink uh, yes, there is. Um, it's, it's actually been quite extraordinary because 
I'm not at all surprised about what the Chinese government are getting up to. Uh, the bottom line is we abandoned the citizens of Hong Kong to communism in 1997. Uh, what did we think was going to be happening? Um, so what is most surprising to me is how long it has taken for the uh, mainland Chinese government to actually start flexing their muscles and exert their sovereignty. Um, th this is actually a challenge. For, for those of us who, who are aware of the, the Westphalian state and all this sort of stuff, um, Hong Kong is a Chinese territory and and the Chinese government more or less can behave the way they want to. Um, the the basic law which the British negotiated with, with, with the Chinese government is more or less observed simply because the Chinese government have chosen to do so. Um, so yeah, it, I, I just can't get away from the fact that the British government did the wrong thing by Hong Kong when they handed it over, when they promised to hand it over, and in 1997 when they did hand it over, um, what did we think was going to happen? But, I, but I, uh, look, I, I agree that they did the wrong thing in that, but th this does tell you that they can't just do whatever they want. There's no suggestion that there would be rolling tanks through yes, the streets well, of Hong Kong they, or they, anything like that. They definitely lack the political will to roll tanks through the streets of Hong Kong. Um, but to be quite honest, what would the rest of us do if they did? But, but Sink, I, no, I, I don't know that you... It's a very British-centric view that this is somehow all the fault of the, the, the Brits. Um, well, yeah, Margaret I'm Thatcher not, in I'm particular. Not, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what they were meant to do, given that... Um, we're uh, so, academics, so, so obviously most things are the fault so, of the So they had a, uh, <laughs> a, a perpetual treaty over the island of Hong Kong, but yes. only a 100-year treaty over the access to the new territories. So, yes. the, so time, the time was up. What, the, what were they supposed to do? The, Turn around and, and just say, oh, well, actually, we're not leaving. The line is actually Boundary Road. So if you've been to Hong Kong and you've been up into mm. Kowloon, Boundary Road is from, from Boundary Road down to the island, and the island itself was the perpetual area, and north of Boundary Road is the, is the new territories, effectively. Um, yes, I know the time was up. They could have negotiated harder. I, I mean, me personally, I would have parked a Polaris submarine in the harbour and <laughs> said, uh, she who blinks last keep Hong Kong. Um, they, may well, they may well have done so. Too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 here here no, is the here is the rub. Here is the rub. We no, we abandoned we we the West whoever misses that. This is a very Western centric view of things. Uh, yes, well, actually, democracy and rule of law and civilized behavior of governments and not kidnapping your citizens and moving them across the river and torturing them are also uh, sort of Western uh, centric ideas too. Um, Hong Kong died in 1997. It's just dying. It's taken longer than I expected, is, is, is my point. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant. I was actually there for the handover. Yeah, and, uh, me too. And, 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 like, and like many people... Were you people, guys hanging out? Uh, I've, I've perhaps been more hopeful. I mean, it's always been the question, is China playing a long game? Or were they genuinely interested in maybe preserving this? There was a theory that they, uh, just for realpolitik, they would be nice to Hong Kong and that might encourage those people, uh, those recalcitrant people over in Taiwan to think better about the idea of some kind of accommodation with China. Um, and of course, the Brits didn't have democracy either. So there's, there was rule of law um, and, uh, and a level of freedom of expression that the Brits had. Could not the Chinese, perhaps uh, the Chinese government, maintain that and still not have democracy? But well, I mean, the, the, um, this, Hayek, this Hayek really has, a, has, has a very fascinating discussion about this. If you are going to have non-democratic government, do you want to have non-democratic liberal government or non-democratic illiberal government? And or actually, the the real concern is if you have a democratic illiberal government. And his argument was always, he wrote this in the 1960s in his uh, um, Constitution of Liberty. His argument was that you would rather have an illiberal uh, sorry, a, a democratic but uh, sorry, a non-democratic but illiberal government than a democratic illiberal government is is, is the choice you would have now. No, I mean, I mean, that's a simple, do you want um, socialist China or do you want liberal Hong Kong? That's, and I, I yeah. think liberal Hong Kong is definitely what we want. But liberal, a, a liberal non-democracy. But, but, uh, yes, is, that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, 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 is, yeah. Is, is actually better. And and that's what Hong Kong was. And it was it was wonderfully successful. And technically but bearing, still is. I mean, well, no, it isn't. I've, 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 to, I've, to a still significant degree. No. Mm, I, uh, a I've, significant I've, degree. The, <laughs> we, we, when I speak to people from Hong Kong, they've been telling me over the years their, their rights and freedoms have been eroded over time. 
time. Um, it has been the first. The first time I was in Hong Kong was in two thousand and five, um, and there, there was a big World Trade Organization meeting in Hong Kong, and I was there. Um, and uh, the ads on the television were about licensing of the trades. Um, like it's you know, as of next year, the trade licensing is going to come in. If you're an electrician, you now have to register with the government, and and that, and that's a small thing in the scheme in in this sort of giant geopolitical. But it told told me at the time, and it's only seemed to have gotten worse that over time that deregulated liberal free market environment has just been declining but i don't agree with sinclair um that the um that that free hong kong is gone this tells us really clearly that free hong kong still exists in the mind of the hong kong people and it exists in our um perception of that city as well it, it the china is a strange geopolitical entity in that it has multiple systems in the single country now and hong kong and macau to a lesser extent are just really strong indications that you can have weirdly you can still have a quasi-liberal city in the middle of controlled by a totalitarian state I I'm, I take more of the boiling frog kind of story. Um, I, I agree China is very unusual in that it's, it's got these multiple systems. And I'd always hoped that over time that the rest of China would evolve more along the lines of Hong Kong um, and, and Taiwan. Yes. Um, that's certainly my hope. But um, I, I'm, I'm less optimistic. Um, I've, I've been traveling to Hong Kong since the early mid-1990s. So I've actually watched as it has deteriorated and changed over time. Um, and, and certainly every time I visit, it's become more a strange, foreign, typically Chinese city to my mind. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think it has changed. I think it is dying. I think it is very sad. Um, but certainly um, the, the, the protections of the basic law are simply there because for whatever purpose or reason the Chinese government itself has, it doesn't either have the political will or the, or the or the. Or they, or they just, it's a waiting well, game. Yes, well, yes, well, and, well, and, and to a large extent, I suspect that's true. Um, the obviously, I imagine the, the citizens of Hong Kong are are unhappy. But in 1989, whenever it was, the citizens of Beijing were unhappy too. Um, so let, let's talk about the the issue on the table because it actually has an interesting Australian um, angle there as well. And um, we might talk to um, uh, you, Kurt, about this because. Uh, it, it's about an extradition treaty, or it's about an extradition agreement, I should say, um, because they lack an extradition treaty with both China, Hong Kong and China, and Taiwan as well. And it strikes me that this is a much harder um, issue than than we've been understanding in Australia because the, the, the thing that kicked off the need, or the, the government argued that they needed this extradition agreement, was because a Hong Kong resident in Taiwan killed his Taiwanese girlfriend, then fled to Hong Kong, and Hong Kong realised that there was no way for them to extradite um, that person who'd done something obviously really terrible back to Taiwan, itself a free country. Um, we have these extradition agreements. There are there are networks of extradition agreements around the world, and the Australian government in 2016-17 actually tried to ratify an extradition agreement with China itself. So we, as a free democratic country, wanted the capacity to to send people back to, or not necessarily back to, send people to China for prosecution. Now, how 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 should we think through these pro this this challenge? Because we don't. We don't want to be a safe haven for criminality, on the other hand, do we? Well, I think um, like the catalyst for this Hong Kong bill is a very like serious question. Um, you know, it's actually a, a practicality matter there. But I think it's uh, it reveals like this tension between um, you know varying legal systems and whether we're willing to hand people over to a legal system which we fundamentally believe is um, violating people's human rights. So I don't think that it's. Um, I think it's. Um, a case-by-case -case basis. You don't want to hand um, people over to a Chinese government uh, for things that you believe, uh, you know, that you don't believe they've done anything wrong. You don't want to hand them over to a government that's going to, to prosecute them and put them in jail for, for something that you believe is is um, their human right. So I think it's uh, it reveals a, a tension in uh, global politics and one that doesn't really have uh, very easy, straightforward, uh, across-the-board answers. 
I mean, happily, the, we're making our choices. The, the, uh, the Australian government would not extradite such a person to China anyway because China operates the death penalty. Uh, we, don't ex- we, we don't extradite people when they could face the death penalty. Well, why has Julian or Assange been uh, extradited <laughs> from the UK to the US? Uh, uh, for the same reason that they handed, been they're the same reasons they handed Hong Kong over to the communists, is that they are spineless and gutless. <laughs> so um, uh, the, should, the, should have sent a Polaris submarine to New York. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> I, I, so, just for consistency. Uh, why so. the Australian <laughs> government is not actually protesting the, the, the extradition of Assange to the United States is, is beyond me. The other point I would make is I, I, I I think Taiwan and the People's Republic of China are still technically at war. Um, so why they would actually have an extradition treaty with each other is also beyond me. Right. Um, <laughs> so, but I mean, the, the, the whole case, I mean, I mean, hard cases make bad law. I mean, yep. the person committed murder and we, we actually got zero sympathy for that sort of thing. But I, I think we shouldn't lose... Allegedly sight. committed murder. Alleg- right. Allegedly, <coughs> yes, yes. Um, and we don't uh, want to extradite yeah. you. No, <laughs> well, and, and, and there's, I just want to come back to Chris's point about the, the cultural element to this, which is, you know, this, this was a, um, essentially a polity that, that Britain created, as I say, not necessarily democratic, but certainly it has its own culture. And, uh, you know, one of the more, you know, many, many moving aspects to seeing the the protests and um it, it, it must be significant somehow that the major protest song is sing hallelujah to the lord um <laughs> it's not saying that the, they're necessarily particularly religious although many of them are um it must drive them mad in beijing that they've actually uh, <laughs> chosen this this uh, song of christian praise as uh, which handily only has five words to remember um there's that and then also um uh, can you hear the people sing from Les Mis? Yes. Which I, which I love as a, 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 as we were saying before the podcast, Scott, I really love that as a, um, uh, as a lovely cultural moment because it's a French novel adapted into a French musical adapted to an English musical sung by people in Hong Kong against the Chinese government, <laughs> which is it's just a beautiful thing. <laughs> I will add something before we move on. Um, so I did raise the fact that the... Um, in 2017, the Turnbull government was looking to pass this extradition law. They did, or ratify the extradition treaty. The treaty itself had been agreed to in 2007 when the last decisions made by the Howard government's foreign policy team. Um, but it was, uh, it did not get ratified by the parliament, in part because Labor was very opposed, but also very strongly because of a furious and angry rebellion from the Liberal Party backbenchers. And we will name our very good friends, Tim Wilson, James Patterson, Andrew Hastie, and Jonathan Dunningham um, as as leaders in that. So um, the Australian government has for many years been trying to get us to sign this treaty, but thankfully there are liberal liberals still, just no, as there really? are liberal Hong Kongers, Sinclair. They have still. been betrayed, those liberal Hong Kongers. <laughs> I, think it, I think that story, which is a very important one, and credit to those who, who arced up, just shows how quickly all this has turned around. I mean... Um, Sink, clearly uh, you can claim I told you so. Yes. Yeah, that you've been saying this nonstop. For those who are <laughs> a little bit more soft-hearted, uh, who had, had some hope that somehow China would maintain a, uh, a modus vivendi, that's sort of a, a Deng Xiaoping kind of game. It's you know, glorious to be rich and, you know, so long as the Communist Party rules, there's a certain level of, uh, if not freedom, at least, you know, personal autonomy with Xi Jinping, of course, this has turned around very quickly and there was a lag mm. in Australia and around the world. You know, we had businessmen, uh, I think um, Jamie Packer famously said, oh, people don't understand China, it's fine, it's fine, there's no problem at all. And about six months later, his executive team was in jail. Yeah, that's a classic Australian business thing, though. So they go to China and they say, oh, wow, they could build infrastructure, fantastic, <laughs> we should be like them. And then, you know, some of their executives go to jail. The worst <laughs> thing about, about Australian businessmen is that they also go to Canberra and, <laughs> and, and, and tell those same, same stories. Same, much the same thing, oh, yeah. it's fine. Yeah, yeah no, it's no, all fine, yeah, no, it, just, it just isn't. <laughs> So, um, as always, we're on the lookout for ways to uh, operate without having to worry about governments too much. And there's been a fascinating development overnight, which our blockchain friends have been watching with great interest. Well, there has, and I think there are two big parts to this. Um, uh, Facebook has announced its new uh, coin, digital currency. Um, Is it a cryptocurrency? These are things that Sinclair and I have been discussing at length over the last uh, 24 hours. Um, But what blockchain has announced is a digital coin called Libra. Um, It's coming in 2020. They released the white paper. Is that like a word for... 
for freedom. Uh, it very well could be. Thank uh, you, Scott, for bringing sign. it up. Uh, or, or star sign. <laughs> um, uh, it's actually been launched at, at, by a, a, a consortium, Facebook's company, a new one called Cult Libra, with partners such as Uber, Spotify, big payments gateway, payments networks like Mastercard, Visa, Vodafone um, is one of them, Stripe as well. Um, this is a really significant thing um, uh, for global capitalism, for the global financial system. It's really significant from an Australian public policy context. Um, and I'd like to sort of first talk about a, a bit about the 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 product that they've released or they're about to release and then maybe what how this ties into this ongoing discussion we're having about Australian monetary policy but why don't we start with you Sinclair how do you how do you interpret this what what is the significance of um, uh, the Libra in, well, in the financial I, system I, I actually love it I think it's it's, it's a fascinating development I, I think it's awesome um, it to, to my mind it is not a cryptocurrency it is, it is a digital money. It is what an economist might call an inside money. And I think certainly what, what Facebook have created is a private international order. They've, they've created a private international reserve currency, which is going to be the Libra. So the story is that you will buy your Libras and the value of those Libras will be maintained or linked or tethered, however you want to describe it, to a portfolio of more or less risk-free assets. So they've created, you can think of it as, an, as, a, as a private international gold standard where the gold is this portfolio of assets that you will then go along and you will trade um, and you will more or less send each other a message, even I imagine messenger, it's probably a bit more secure than messenger, but uh, <laughs> probably something like a, a signal version of messenger and you will simply transfer the money to each other. Um, that will be recorded in the system and at some point updated to a permissioned uh, uh, blockchain. So it will have all the transparency and all that sort of stuff that comes with blockchain. Um, this is not what I think of as Satoshi Nakamoto's vision of a of a digital money, um, but it is certainly uh, very much closer than, say, PayPal or was. So um, I said this morning to Chris, I think this is PayPal on steroids, and he said, no, 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 it's more like a blockchain. But um, I, I think people will quibble around uh, around those sorts of issues. <laughs> you don't want to hear us argue about this you point wanna, for but, like half an hour. But, but I think the most important thing is, is that government fiat currency has actually been massively, I don't want to say attacked, because you don't want to upset the, the, the statists. <laughs> yes, but, don't, don't give the game away or the but, 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 but certainly this is the biggest threat to the modern state ever. Now, threats that we faced <laughs> in the past have been things like uh, um, um, barbarians invading or um, um, homegrown heresies like fascism and communism and what have you. Actually, this strikes at the very heart of the money function of the modern state. And I think regulators and monetary authorities around the world are going to be looking at it very, very closely, trying to pick it apart, because certainly their days are numbered. So, Kurt, is this, is this what... Facebook want to do is this a grand state uh, attack against the state, or do you think there's a that there's some sort of corporate incentive here, or wh how how do you read the Facebook proposal? Well, I don't think Facebook is um, trying to attack the monetary system, like motivated by a libertarian goals. They're clearly motivated by um, you know business and you know making it easier for for people to to transact, and they've been pushing like the marketplace and all that, those sorts of things on on Facebook. So. Um, yeah, I don't think they're motivated by that, but I think it's um, it's going to really, like as you say, um, allow people to to trade out of their local currency, trade into um, Facebook's currency, and that will have huge ramifications for for monetary policy, um, especially like in, in um, developing countries where there's uh, less reliable currencies. You've got central banks going completely rogue, um, high high inflation. Um, like you can just imagine in Venezuela, when you have currency collapse, people can just, um, you know, if, the, if they're already trading on Facebook um, with this, this new currency, then um, they've already used it, then the incentive and the, the, the desire for them to, to just put all their money into to this um, new currency is, is clearly there and has huge ramifications for protecting them against inflation and collapse of currency. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think what Facebook has realised is, and, and the tech companies in general, and, and it's not only Facebook that's looking at these sorts of 
um, programs and, and products. The, the tech companies have realized that they have more users than the banks. They are much more globally networked companies. And so they've, they spent the last two decades building out the communications infrastructure. Now they're building out the financial infrastructure. Mm. So we're entering a world where there are multiple competing platforms. Some of those platforms are called governments with central banks um, and you know marketplaces and uh, all that sort of thing. And some of them are digital platforms with their own financial systems, with... Um, those financial systems will have monetary policies that will compete against each other. So that, so as Sinclair was saying, they've chosen in this case to to um, use what we call a stable coin. They've pegged it to a group of assets, and and it's secured by those assets. Those assets are central bank currencies and cash and and so forth. Um, uh, and and there will be other ones. You know, another one is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is is um, is algorithmically pegged. There's only going to be 20 million, 21 million coins. There are other systems. So what I think is most exciting about all of this is not necessarily just what the Facebook coin or this Libra is um, going to do for us, even what it's going to do in the developing world, which I think is huge. But what I think is really exciting is that this is just the first one. Yes. This is the first... Um, maybe Bitcoin, you could say Bitcoin was the first mainstream digital currency. This is going to be much more mainstream than yes. Bitcoin by because it doesn't take sort of elite computer skills to um, use. This is going to be available to everyone, everywhere on the planet immediately to make exchanges with, to store value and every other company, every other big tech company, every other bank, every governments are already looking at digital currencies. They're going to try to compete. And and this is why I, I um, agree completely with Sinclair. If you've ever seen a threat to the modern Westphalian state before, this is the greatest is one it. so far. If you attack a government's money system, you attack the way the government can fund itself, can tax it. Tax and operate. And yeah. operate. And uh, so the, the predictions are already that within a year, all of the fangs the big tech companies will have their own digital currencies out there. Yeah, uh, one, one of the questions for me, though, is, um, uh, and I blundered into calling it a cryptocurrency, so thank you for the correction. Um, no, I still think it's cryptocurrency. Oh, I'm, all, good, okay. I'm always, I'm always happy when Chris is wrong because it's an opportunity <laughs> for him to learn something. Well, well but, but you Thanks. say it's backed, uh, <laughs> and I presume the differentiator is that it's backed by this pool of risk-free assets. After the global financial crisis, I'm, I'm pretty wary of anyone saying, don't worry about these, they're all risk-free. Haven't we just... It's not well, no, 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 no. Because what we've got, what we've got with... Um, uh, with countries generally in feed currency systems is, you know, the risk of um, uh, printing money, of inflation, da 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 all, we, all we're doing now is we've got a different kind of risk, which, yep. it, which is that this basket of things which are called risk-free still got, you know, default risk and sovereign risk and all these kinds so of I'll things. So I'll tell you what you should do, diversify. So I mean, th this is one potential. No, no, but they will. They will have to do this. I mean, well, no, 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 no. no. They will diversify, and you can diversify. Mm -hmm. So um, um, last year, I think it was Chris and I wrote an, an excellent paper. Let me say, mm, um, where we were talking about the the trade offs between private money and public money, and the trade off between a private money and a public money is on the private money side, you've got the default risk, which you've just actually identified, and on the public side, we've got the inflation risk. Which, which, which Kurt identified. Um, now, historically, we've actually been able to deal with inflation better than we can deal with default risk. But now we've actually, with, with uh, uh, blockchain-enabled technology, we can actually better manage default risk um, now than what we have been able to in the past. So we actually live in a world where we can actually have private monies better competing with fiat currency. Um, fiat currency is a terrible way of doing things, but it actually works reasonably well. Now, I imagine take-up of, of this Facebook currency, I'm going to call them Zuckers, because I think everybody's going to end up calling them Zuckers or Zucks or something like that. Um, Zuckbucks, not Zuckbucks. me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think these particular currencies are actually going to make fiat in many ways work better in those places where it works well. But as Kurt said, in, in developing countries, I reckon their currency systems are gone. Um, certainly, and anybody whose job it is to do things such as transfer money across international borders um, are, are, are gone. So the whole remittance industry overnight has been completely revolutionized, completely disrupted. Um, these are exciting developments. So, Kurt, I mean, th it's interesting that this is done by Facebook. So Facebook is um, at the center of a worldwide global discussion into privacy. Um, uh, are you concerned by um, if they 
managed to take over the global monetary system. Um, are we doubling down on these privacy challenges? Um, uh, uh, you know, so and and I'll give a slightly extended point. I mean, in the Hong Kong um, protests, there was a great deal of concern about buying um, temporary metro tickets with cash rather than using their Oyster cards because they were worried that the government could track who was traveling where during the protests. Are we worried about handing over our financial information, our purchasing details to private companies? Well, yeah, it, it, it very might, might prove to be the mark of the beast here. Um, we've got, you're handing over, like Facebook knows a lot more about you than, than your bank knows about you, for example. Um, I think is a, is a big concern with Facebook, um, like we've we've had all the problems with censorship and all that, and the the way that they can they know everything about you and they can control um, political narratives by what they show you and all these sorts of sorts of things. I think there there is a privacy concern, and that's why I think that um, though I'm not across the details of of Facebook's new coin, but um, the Bitcoin is still a superior in my mind um, a currency because of the privacy it affords you. Um, and I think it is concerning that um, yeah, if we have Facebook literally controlling uh, currency that could end uh, poorly as well. But the the point raised by think that we'll have um, you know competing currencies and every tech firm will have a, a currency. I, I'm not convinced yet whether we will have a, a multitude of currencies or whether there will be one that sort of takes over. So Facebook obviously has a, a huge advantage um, in what they put forward because they have um, such a huge market share of you know everyone has Facebook and. Um, people are going to t- have a huge take up of that of that currency, not based on, you know, oh, I've, I've evaluated these um, different coins, and I think <laughs> this one because it's based on, um, you know, this portfolio of bonds. No, they're hyper rational consumers. Um, yeah, in this yeah, story, yeah, yeah, no, they're just they're just going for whatever um, is built into the platforms that they use. So there's not going to be um, huge competition based on um, based on the, the quality of the coin until maybe. Um, if we have a financial situation where, where things um, where we can sort of prove the, the um, the quality of these different the coins, then you're not, we're not really going to see that on a large scale. I don't think so. I think that Facebook does have um, a huge advantage here, and not necessarily. Um, I don't think I, I don't feel particularly comfortable in trusting all of my information and currency and no, no. everything to, but, to Facebook. But speaking of the quality of the coin, all right. Now, where in this, I find this very hard to dis, um, to separate from what's going on in monetary policy right now. So you think about, and, and I've been thinking about what the the RBA's inability to take control, and we're, we're outside the inflation band, and they, they and haven't. That's been a good to, thing. Let me just say. Well, right, no. I think we'll come to that. We're on the right side of the. We, we might be. We might be on the right side of it, but that's not what they plan to do. Okay, no. so so it's out of their control, even yes. if we might favour the results. And it's hard to think that right now in Australia, we have monetary policy at a more... uh, It's never been more precarious since the early 1990s. Not... uh, I mean, we've had monetary policy outside the inflation band during the um, global financial crisis, but that was a financial crisis. Right now, we have monetary policy out of control of the central bank, whose primary feature and primary claim to credit is that it's looking after the Australian the Australian coin. Yes. Isn't this a huge problem? And what does it tell us that at the same time we're losing control of monetary policy, we're starting to develop alternative <laughs> monetary systems? Um, I think the question, what does the Reserve Bank actually do and why do we have one, is going to become a far more mainstream question as we move <laughs> forward. Um, right now it's always been a... Finally, sort of our on- free banking views will be... Yes, <laughs> well, yes, 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 because it boils down to... I'm going to trust Mark Zuckerberg more than I trust Philip Lowe um, because Zuckerberg has actually got money on the table, um, <laughs> whereas those guys at the Reserve Bank simply don't. So uh, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic that inflation is below the government's 2 to 3% range, which I think is outrageous. I mean, it's, it's, it's like public theft. Um, so you know, normally we worried about it being on the upside. Um, the, the, the nice thing about the, these competing cryptocurrencies and, and digital monies and what have you, it will actually force reserve banks to actually do a much better job at what they are doing. Um, and that will actually drive inflation closer towards zero. So we should actually be looking at uh, 
uh, uh, reducing our, our inflation band if we keep the Reserve Bank. Um, it'll take a long time for the Reserve Bank to wither away and die, but certainly overnight, um, the clock is ticking. But, but what should a central bank do then? So, so right now, I'm, I'm very influenced by um, Stephen Kirshner, our friend Stephen Kirshner from the US Study Center, um, who's made the really interesting point that um, the RBA is already trading off a lot of mandates. So yes. the RBA trades off the inflation mandate against a full employment mandate, which it now interprets as a reduced unemployment mandate. Um, and then on top of that, it has added, in concert with the government, a mandate for financial stability, which it is allowed to, under the 2016 agreement with the government, it is allowed to actually favour financial stability over inflation. So it, it strikes me that we've got, on the one hand, we've got Mark Zuckerberg and we've got Satoshi Nakamoto, and they're defining the purpose of a currency in a very tight way. They're saying it is to do this. On the other hand, the central bank has said, fix all the problems in the economy using the tools of monetary policy by printing money or, 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 or targeting discount rates or whatever it is. Um, the, it it, yeah, it strikes you we've got these horribly that, politicized that, that, that's organizations. That's the real risk. Yeah. That's the real risk. Like, unlike SYNC, I, I am um, a bit less relaxed about deflation as a phenomenon, but I am very, very concerned that they will look at this deflation and say that that is a reason to um, uh, loosen monetary policy, engage in de facto quantitative easing, because there's still everything I read coming out of the Reserve Bank. So they've redefined full employment. As you say, they have multiple objectives, and full employment was seen to be a number with five in front of it, and now it's seen to be a number with four in front of it. <laughs> so all you get when you read well, the, the, the what's that's coming full. out of the Reserve Bank still assumes... This, this sort of neo-Keynesian world where they can just sit there and pull the levers and if they just put a bit more money into the economy, unemployment will come down, uh, we'll get closer to that inflation band that we're looking for. They're going to declare a crisis where, and, and this is where maybe think uh, I am going to start listening to you, there is no crisis, <laughs> that this is actually a good thing. Just relax and stop doing stupid things. I think they're on the verge of doing something wildly stupid. No, I think they're in a crisis because they... Uh, I would rather it's they. It's an analytical crisis. I would, I would they, rather they, they believe do, it's a policy they, crisis. They believe they can change change things by pulling a few levers. I, you know, I agree with that. But I would rather them deliberately write the inflation band down so they can say, oh, we'll we'll accept one percent or zero percent inflation or what have you, or even deflation. I would rather them do that than be unable to hit their own targets yes. because the most important thing, as I see it, is um, uh, that that it is predictable. So this is like metro trains where they define plus or minus five minutes has been on time. So yes, the wonderful yep, Melbourne yep. train system. So yep. if we can't actually hit our target, we'll just move the target. So <laughs> we shoot the arrows and then no, but at least no, 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 I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that if we are going to, as a society, decide that in fact the target can be one percent, that's that's why, that's fine. Why don't we just all agree that the function of the Reserve Bank is to create employment opportunities for people who would otherwise be unemployable? Wouldn't you agree, Kurt? Well, yeah, it is, it, it's a huge employer of uh, monetary economists, and that's why if you're an aspiring monetary economist, you, you don't criticise central banks. Um, but I think the problem here is that the the inflation target has the built-in assumption that there's this relationship between you know a 2% inflation uh, number and full employment. So hmm. as Scott was saying, this is just a neo-Keynesian view of of inflation and growth which i don't think is is in reality and i think that there is deflation is good cheaper prices are good yes um if you have um a you know if if goods if if growth in goods it, it outgrows growth in inflation then uh growth in the monetary supply then you have um deflation. prices coming down and, and this is a wonderful thing. I, I for one, you know, listeners should be aware uh, that Sink is staring at me, saying, "I, I, I tried to explain <laughs> this to you, you this dope." This but, is intimidating. But, but now, I'd like my mm -hmm. expenses to, 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 to decrease. And yeah, you're a graduate of the University of Melbourne, aren't you? Oh, yeah, but this is what I'm saying. They they never taught any of this stuff. It was all neo Keynesian <laughs> rubbish. I've spent thirty years trying to get away from it. The other thing I would say is that the other problem with this is this idea that there is a single price level. So we have like this aggregated you know, price level that we're targeting, which, you know, there's a lot going on within that big P. Yeah. So there's relative price changes that, that are, you know, centrally important. And this is what um, Hayek and Mises pointed out, is that, you know, when you ha try and target a, a certain inflation um, level, you're actually changing the the price, the, the relative prices that are very meaningful in the economy. And we, do, we don't consume a generic RBA 
bank, uh, basket a bundle of goods. Bundle of goods. No, yeah. no, no. That's no. just not. Uh, I do not shop at the RBA. Um, yeah, I, you know, I we buy technology, which just has different characteristics in terms of quality and cost, and we buy all sorts of different things. And um, it, it, there, there are significant changes within that basket of goods yes. that make it yes. really hard to be meaningful. And, and, and the, the, the point that Kurt makes is actually very important. The, the, the notion we should leave relative prices changes alone and we should actually focus on the quality of our money. So if we have inflation or deflation occurring because the quality of our money is changing, that is a problem. And this is where these private monies are actually going to do a much better job because the, the, the private money providers are actually saying, we don't want the quality of our money to change. We don't care about the rest of it. I look forward to the day when the IPA can take donations in uh, the, this new any any number of these new currencies. So. Uh, IPA coin. IPA coin. Yeah, well, yeah, we can yeah. do our own. Even well, I've, I've been pushing the idea of sink gold for a long time, but, but nobody <laughs> really just wants keeps to saying it in <laughs> it's, it's uh, every meeting that we have. It's actually getting really hard. It's, it's a catchy name. <laughs> now, Kurt mentioned Hayek. Speaking of Hayek, as we like to say on the Looking Forward uh, podcast, uh, Kurt's actually provided a landmark report in recent weeks, and we're just going to um, talk a little bit about that before we move to our books and culture segment. Yeah, so um, I've just um, released the, the Dark Matter regulatory dark matter report, so um, looking at regulatory actions taken by um, agencies that aren't subject to um, a whole lot of deal of scrutiny and democratic accountability. So uh, I looked at uh, five regulators in the finance and um, banking uh, sectors and counted up like all of the um, publications on the website, so the guidance material um, explaining regulations, all these things that uh, regulated bodies have to go through and, um, you know, decipher how they're going to comply with all these um, restrictions. So so what kind of agencies are we talking about here? Uh, so I was looking at ASIC, APRA, uh, ACCC, AASB and AUASB. So there's some of the... Um, Wonderful acronyms there. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, some of the, um, the standards boards. So um, so the count was that there was um, 76,000 pages of, of what I'm terming here regulatory dark matter, which... <laughs> Um, Seventy-six thousand. Yeah, so that that's count that's that's counting legislative instruments. So, yes. um, so things that you know normally do have um, democratic accountability, but in practice, there's not a whole lot of scrutiny going on from the parliament. That's seventy-six thousand from those agencies alone. Yes. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. So um, the problem here is that parliament has delegated authority to to these agencies, but then the parliament isn't holding them accountable for the things they're doing and the other thing the other part of that so you've got legislative instruments um which you know is all on the books but then you have all this what's termed quasi regulation or soft law um so that's all the guidance materials or anything that indicates what the the regulators are going to do so if you're um uh, a, a business that's that's regulated by one of these regulators you have to you know try and work out what their intentions are because um you know their intentions may be more important than what's actually written in the law um, and you have to to read through their guidance, which contains a whole you know extra layer of interpretation, um, which is fairly arbitrary and unaccountable. Yeah, and that's very dangerous. From a it, it, again, it goes back to you need regulatory regulatory certainty in order to make long term or even medium term business decisions. And if we're rather than giving that responsibility for certainty to a slow-moving parliamentary process, if we're just handing it down to basically unaccountable, in fact, unaccountable by design regulators because they're independent so that we can't make them accountable to parliament, um, uh, you, you deeply harm the ability for businesses to make long-term well, plans. Well, it's actually worse than that because not only do they have these these, these so-called independent uh, regulators, but the parliament still claims, oh, we still have some sort of oversight through the Senate estimates uh, <laughs> uh, um, process. Now, The most rigorous possible I, process. Now, now, I have to say to my shame, I hope people don't think less of me. Um, I often watch um, some <laughs> estimates processes. And Is that your culture pick? And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and read the Hansard, and you see these public servants simply running rings around the politicians or the politicians playing silly buggers and trying to play gotcha with the opposition or the government, as the case may be. Um, so it, I, I think we really need to emphasize how completely unaccountable these regulatory agencies actually are. But I, I also like... To, to point out that a lot of that regulatory dark matter or grey letter law or that, it, it doesn't just 
it's not just arbitrary decisions to put in the law. It actually enables arbitrary decision-making by the regulators themselves down the track. Yes. So it's yeah. it's not just the things that we can read and the things that you can you can print out and, and count the pages of and um, sort of go through what the process is. It actually just gives them discretion to make more and more choices. And um, mm. Scott pointed this piece out. Was it in the AFR today, Scott, about the... Correct. So the Australian Securities Investment Commission, ASIC, are now putting, according to this AFR piece, they're putting organisational psychologists into boardrooms of 21 major companies in order to try to achieve the goals that set up by the Hain Royal Commission of affecting corporate Australia's culture. culture. Mm. Now, you can't write that down, and I defy anybody who claims that they could even come up with a definition of corporate culture. Um, uh, the idea that we're just handing over to ASIC, I don't know, the, the power to sit and uh, un understand the psychology of a boardroom meeting is just insane to me and so harmful for, um, uh, for Australian business. Now, what should be a culture pick, of course, is the castle. Um, <laughs> and and um, putting psychologists or government agency actually trying to regulate culture violates the vibe of the thing. And the vibe of the thing here is companies are running the interests of their shareholders. Um, uh, now it seems that companies are going to be running the interests of what ASIC thinks. That's, that's right. Yeah. A I mean, good I mean, culture. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, there's so many layers of, of stupidity on this. It's, it's hard to know where to start. So they've, they've taken something that's hard to define, oh. culture, and then you assume that out of this construct of culture, you can define what a good culture looks like. And a good culture seems to be, be certain norms that may or may not have anything to do with creating share or shareholder value. And then they go and, and, and there's this obsession with um, have they considered all of the risks and what, a, what an organisational psychologist would know about how boards should assess risk is, is beyond me anyway. <laughs> Especially one employed by ASIC. And, and, and all that will happen is you'll, you'll create a monoculture defined by ASIC where every board considers the same risks in the same way and reaches the same conclusions and then something will come along uh, which wasn't part of that, that set and everyone, ex you know, will be like, oh, my God, I didn't see that coming. And that is why we had the global financial crisis, not for these crazy reasons that you think, because there was a, mon a monoculture around what constituted risk. And, of course, if you've read exactly. Ayn Rand's uh, awesome book, Atlas Shrugged, this is exactly what happens in that story. Yes, and, 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 and the great Nassim Taleb uh, would be a contemporary writer who, who, made, you know, who wrote The Black Swan about, you know, again, precisely this phenomenon of, of having you know the same jerks telling you what the risk uh, that you must consider risk, but also telling you what risk to consider. Imagine if we had a system, just hypothetically. Imagine we had a system where companies chose different risk profiles and had different cultures. Shocking. And then they would compete against each other to see who was more successful. That's all very well in practice, Chris. It could never work in theory. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. So um, I commend to listeners uh, Kurt's paper. We will link to it in the notes field of this podcast. Um, regulatory dark matter eight times as much regulatory dark matter as there is uh, legislation, and the legislation's bad enough. Now, speaking of culture, gentlemen, it is time for our culture picks. What have you been reading, watching, or listening to in the last little while? Well, I'm very embarrassed. Every time I come on this podcast, I always say I'm late to this. Um, I'm astonishingly late <laughs> to the, this time. Um, I watched on Netflix the other night the first John Wick movie with Keanu Reeves. Mm. Now... I was watching this movie and it is a great... It's good to catch up with popular culture eventually. Yes, 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 yes. And, and all the bad people who had it coming get it coming, I mm. tell you. But anyway, I'm watching this movie and I'm kind of thinking, okay, let's think about the, the revenge genre style. Because the body here. count is very high. Oh, it is astonishing. I, I loved every second of it. Um, <laughs> uh, it it's, I just uh, like to see people die. The, I, yes, I, I, yes, really especially bad people dying, especially <laughs> when you know they're bad people. Um, so I, I started thinking about the, the revenge genre and... And the first movie I can remember in the revenge genre is the original Death Wish with Charles Bronson. Now, we all know that. I hope we all know the story, at least, because it was redone by, by Bruce Willis a few years ago. And the story is his wife and daughter get kidnapped, raped, and murdered. And this is a peace-loving man who goes out and gets a gun and then goes and kills all the people who, who, who raped and murdered his wife and daughter. And then they made 100 sequels. Um, 
This is the very hard to tell apart, especially with Charles Bronson's uh, yeah, facial features. fine acting abilities. Yeah. Yes, um, but so so th- this is a movie in the s- in the same genre. We have the peace loving man. He's a former assassin who's retired and settled down and living a peaceful life. And then there's this horrible event, and then he reluctantly takes up weapons and goes and kills all the people who did all the bad things to him. What is the horrible event? Some people killed his dog. Okay, so right in the opening moments of the movie, his dog gets killed. Spoiler alert. Yes. Well, there has to be something. (laughs) Now, this is the dog that his wife gave him who'd passed away, and we're all feeling bad and sad and all this sort of stuff. They killed his dog, and then for the next hour and a half, we see about 5,000 people getting shot in the head in slow motion. And I loved every second of it, but I'm kind of thinking, you know, we're actually sort of broadcasting to the world that it's okay to absolutely just lose your junk and go absolutely psycho over more and more trivial events. (laughs) Now, I know I'm going to get hate mail, somebody's dog getting killed is not a trivial event and so on maybe it Sinclair's was his email address is sinclair.davidson <laughs> at rmit.edu it was it was his comfort dog and we have all these comfort dogs and aeroplanes now it's it's I, I, anyway um, but I, I just kind of thought really this is over the top um, so yeah. we've lowered the threshold towards revenge I, yes. a little bit I yeah. cannot yes. I cannot believe that your takeaway of John Wick is this is a bit this is a bit much <laughs> <laughs> well I mean I mean they, they could have done something a bit beyond they killed his dog <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, uh, we're all catching up. I watched John Wick two the other day, and uh, and um, Francisca in the office is lovely. Her answers the phone. I discovered loved John Wick three. <laughs> so um, you'd be surprised, or well, maybe not surprised, who gets right into it. Kurt, what have you got, mate? Um, so I recently watched uh, Poverty Inc., which is a documentary by Michael Matheson Miller, who uh, works at the Acton Institute. Uh, in the United States, so this is a few years old now, but it's uh, on Amazon, Google, uh, YouTube. You can watch it. Um, so this looks at the um, you know the fighting poverty um, you know setup we have, the established setup we have uh, in the in the the West. So uh, it looks at um, how we have this sort of like we have a natural disaster happen. So I looked at um, Haiti and the the earthquake that happened in in 2010. And saw how like all these NGOs and all this government money and food comes piling into um, into Haiti after the the natural disaster. But then it looks at how all of this stuff remains for years and years, even after the um, the natural disaster has um, subsisted and people are trying to get back on with their lives. And the the cultural impact that it has um, in the area where people are now you know have this dependency attitude. Um, you know, where they can get free food, free free goods, um, and the damage that does to, to the local economy. So it looks at a number of things. Like, so one example was um, one guy who um, started a business. He got some hens and, um, you know, had an egg business where he was selling eggs um, in his community. And then, um, you know, a church in America decided, wouldn't it be great if we, you know, got all these eggs and, and sent them to this, to this, this poor area you know to help you know to give people food which is obviously motivated by um, you know the desire to, to help people but what ended up happening is that floods the market with eggs um, this guy goes out of business and then the next season you know this this church has moved on to you know trying to help somebody else and then there's no eggs there's no business um, providing those eggs so um, it really looks at that and, and one of the more troubling things was looking at you know people in um, countries um, like in developing countries who who have businesses and are trying to, to get by and then uh, competing for, uh, there was one example of competing for government contracts with um, firms in, in Europe and then having you know, losing the contract to the firm in Europe because the firm in Europe has got their government to send the money to the developing country to pay for the European the firm to come in and, and do the service that then they outsource all the, the so so they actually destroyed the the local agricultural sector yes oh, well this this in this order example, to save it hmm. well this example was like a tech a tech one where um they you know, this European tech firm comes in and um, takes takes the business away from the local tech um, companies uh, and it's all paid for by the European um, you know, country which which was the host nation. So um, it really um, is a real eye-opener for this whole, um, you know, Poverty Incorporated 
thing where um, the, the current system is really not working. And, and it's relying on this idea that, you know, we can just give aid and that will somehow um, lift these countries out of poverty. Yeah, there's, and, a, and there's a big difference between temporary disaster aid and that sort of permanent yeah, interventionist yeah. aid and, and the the challenges to make sure that when you give that disaster aid, which, you know, I think is a good idea, when you give disaster aid, you've got to also think about how do you just pull out as quickly as you can and let the economy grow back. Yeah, exactly. And the long term, and the, the, the documentary does an excellent job of showing that um, it's business and entrepreneurship and um, institutions like um, private property um, that are necessary for, for building things long term. You can't just... Organisational psychologists, that sort of thing. As well. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy the egg story because um, that sort of reminds me so much of the people who complain about dumping. You know, these, these <laughs> evil foreign companies will come in and sell goods at, at below market price and drive the locals out. Well, that never happens in practice. But I could imagine in an aid situation that exactly happening. And, and the kind of people who comp- who'd be providing the eggs would be simultaneously complaining about dumping. Um, so the hypocrisy of it is actually something that should be called out. Absolutely. Uh, my culture pick today is a podcast um, with some people from the uh, George Mason University's uh, Hayek program. This is affiliated also with the Mercatus Centre. Um, uh, great people, a home for uh, institutional economics, public choice, and they're talking uh, with the author of the RMIT of the North. If you like, <laughs> if you like. that's a pale imitation of, of, of that uh, <laughs> hotbed of institutional economics just up Swanson Street. Um, uh, talking to the biographer of um, Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, uh, yet another economist I never got to hear about when I was at that University of Melbourne all those years ago. Um, and the timing is interesting because, like, one of the arguments I've always hated is the tragedy of the commons argument. You know, every every time some environmentalist or bureaucrat wants to intervene and just sh- and, and start to direct things, they just declare, oh, it's a tragedy of the commons. It's terrible. If Unless we intervene, you know, all the resources will be denuded because no one has an incentive to save them. And, uh, and then game theory came along and, and proved that this was true. Um, the story they tell in this podcast is that long before Garrett Hardin wrote about the tragedy of the Commons in 1968, Eleanor Ostrom had already pointed out that that story only makes sense if you assume that people are really dumb <laughs> and don't know they're in a game and haven't observed the fact that this game isn't working out very well for anybody and maybe, being humans, maybe we should talk to each other and figure out some alternative rules to the game. Shocking, no. Which, no. And then she did multiple, multiple case studies on how they, in fact, do that, whether it be groups of fishermen or, or actual farmers actually grazing on a common... Solving real-world problems without government? Yeah, amazing. And, uh, and so deservedly won that Nobel Prize. Um, and, uh, and also... Another gripe of mine, which this speaks to, is having decided that there's an intervention, the bureaucrats come in, they d- destroy the arrangements that were there, sort of non-market or institutional arrangements, and then they say, well, we'll establish a quota, we'll let a tender, we'll create a property right, and no one can complain about that, especially not you neoliberals, because there's a market operating <laughs> now. Ellen, Eleanor Ostrom is such a fascinating... Or the ideas of Eleanor Ostrom and the research program that she established is such a fascinating thing from a free market economics perspective because um, it's, it, it is absolutely that. It's, it's coordinating communities without government, but it's not coordinating communities in that sort of strict property rights market uh, same sense that we are sometimes caricatured as only believing in. It's communities coming together in the absence of coercion from a central state um, and figuring out ways to manage really challenging problems. Um, there's a sort of spontaneous creation of property rights and, um, and, and organization and governance and all that sort of thing. And, and what she really revealed is the diversity of human um, governing, uh, ways that we can govern ourselves in the absence of government. So if you want to know more about if you want to know more about that, but um, I don't have time to read the book, just listen to this podcast. It's a really good um, uh, jargon-free introduction to that work. If you do want to read the book, it's by a guy called Vlad Tarko, and it's called Eleanor Ostrom: An Intellectual Biography. It's really, really good. We'll link to that as well. 
Um, so I read this week, or last week, uh, the book Solaris by the Polish writer Stanislaw Lem. The book was published in 1961, so I also am catching up on pop culture from days gone by, Sinclair. Um, it, most people may know this Solaris from uh, the movies that have been made of it. The, uh, the three, I, I've seen both these ones, but the three-hour 1972 Russian film by Andrei Tarkovsky um, uh, is the more famous one, but more recently, of course, it was... Uh, there was a George Clooney version filmed by Steven Soderbergh in 2002. The reason I decided to write this is because I'm going to the play. There's a play um, uh, being shown at the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne um, of Solaris. But the book is a really interesting book. And if you're only familiar, or it's a really enjoyable book, but if, if you're only familiar with the story from the movies, you sort of don't get the point. So briefly, and I don't think I'm spoiling it, the, um, it's about a spaceship that's floating above a very strange planet that has an ocean that's kind of alive or something. And it seems to be sending apparitions into the spaceship of um, people that the people in the spaceship had a relationship with. So this guy turns up and suddenly his dead wife is there. Um, I don't think that's a spoiler. I think that's a well-known thing. But the book, so, and most adaptations of this story focus on that relationship between the husband and the dead wife, the, um, the scientist on the spaceship and the dead wife. Turns out the book's all about the planet. <laughs> Turns out the book's all about the ocean. And, and Stanislaw Lem um, was quite amusingly dismissive of the adaptations of um, his book, which is a great book. And he said something like this, to my best knowledge, the book was not dedicated to the erotic problems of people in outer space. <laughs> this is why the book was called in, entitled Solaris, not Love in Outer Space. Was that the movie with Sam Neill? Uh, no, no, no. You're thinking of um, uh, the one where they eventually turn, discover devils and yes, yes, no, no. This is um, th this is the movies are fantastic, but the book just is a totally new because it's about the weird science of a planet that seems to have an ocean that is alive and we don't understand it. So if you're into that sort of traditional 1960s. Um, sci-fi style I, I i really enjoyed it and i recommend it heartily to the listeners very good only only 60 years after the event 60 <laughs> look it's good to get around we're, we're eating me that's what i'm saying yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. No, no very good if you've enjoyed this podcast or or even if you haven't uh make sure you hit your subscribe button on your app right now because uh more great because it might get better <laughs> that's right well we know it gets better because this friday we are releasing our interview with dr peter ridd and it is an absolute cracker of an interview with a cracker of a bloke uh, who's got an amazing story to tell and is very thoughtful about free speech science and what's happening with our universities so keep an eye out for that this podcast looking forward has been brought to you by the institute of public affairs to support our research and productions like this please join or donate at ipa.org.au especially this is the end of financial year and we have an appeal running so think about that please I'm Scott Hargraves. I'm the editor of the IPA Review. I was joined today by Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Professor Sinclair Davidson. Thank you. And Kurt Wallace. Thank you. Big thank you as always to our producer, James Bolt. We'll be back with more Looking Forward soon.